0: Well, good morning, Christ Community, and uh, glad to uh, see your smiling faces. I'm Tom Nelson. I have the great joy of serving on our teaching team uh, at Christ Community, and uh, if you're visiting especially today, I want to give you a very warm welcome. Uh, we're glad you're here, and I uh, hope you sense the presence of Christ here, and uh, we're delighted to all worship in this beautiful space. Isn't This is amazing. Uh, we're delighted that you're here. Well, I'd like to, before I open God's word, uh, have a word of prayer. So would you join me as we pray? Heavenly Father, thank you for all your good gifts to us. I would ask, Holy Spirit of God, that you would clear the clutter from all our minds and our lives, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see as we open your word. Lord, wherever we are in our spiritual life, wherever we are in our journey of faith, may you speak into the deepest crevasses of our hearts and minds. Holy Spirit, only you can do that. And so, Lord, now anoint your servant, open our eyes and ears, and may the meditation of our hearts and the words of my mouth be acceptable in your sight. Because you are an audience of one. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I love sports. Um, If you uh, have heard me speak before, you know I love sports. But there's one sport I'm not really that crazy about, and I hope I'm not offending you this morning, and that's boxing. Um, If you're a boxing fan, all the better for you. But I've just never really been into boxing, but this week my mind turned to boxing, and maybe yours did as well. And that is, at 44 years of age, one of the finest boxers ever to step into the ring, someone who spent a lot of time in Kansas City, died. His name... Tommy Morrison. And if you followed his life, Tommy Morrison was an extraordinary boxer. He defeated George Foreman to be the heavyweight championship of the world. No small task. And if you're a movie buff and a Rocky buff, he showed up in Rocky V. And listening to his trainer talk on the radio today, or this, this week, so said the reason is Hollywood chose Tommy is because he was so intelligent. He never missed a line. People looked at Tommy Morrison and thought, this boxer, this person, the sky is the limit. But in reality, the sky fell in on Tommy Morrison. If you follow his life, you know that Tommy Morrison pursued the good life, at least that's how he saw it. He pursued it with reckless abandonment. But the good life bubble of his boxing career, his life, popped. At a news conference, Tommy Morrison talked about the diagnosis that would change his life, the HIV virus. Tommy Morrison would never box again. An amazing, an amazing person an amazing boxer. And this is what he said at this com- news conference and ended his career. He put it in boxer's terms. And as he looked at his life and the good life he imagined that he pursued, as he described with permissive fast and recklessness, Tommy Morrison summarized his life this way. I zigged when I should have zagged. My point this morning, uh, beginning the message with Tommy Morrison's life, is not to point self-righteous fingers at him at all, but rather for all of us to be reminded with his tragic death and life of an important question all of us need to ask this morning. Whether we are young or old or whatever life stage we're in, the question of what is the good life must be asked. It is a part of being human. We all want to live the good life. And if I were to sort of open your head a little bit in that cranium, I would suggest that when you hear the words the good life, ah, the good life, I would suggest that perhaps animating your imagination is your idea of the good life. What might it be Lots of friends and close-knit family, it's a good thing. Maybe it's a successful career, making it big in the world. Maybe it's financial security and wealth. Ah, if I just had that, I would be really alive. It may be making a difference in the world, a great cause to change the world, to make a difference. All of us. Have an animating idea of what the good life is. And how we picture that, like Tommy Morrison pictured it, profoundly shapes how we live our life and the trajectory and the destination of our life. And what is not surprising is the most brilliant person to ever walk the planet, the most brilliant teacher, the greatest philosopher. And more, Jesus of Nazareth addressed this question. He addressed this question, what is the good life? As philosophers have described, the good, the true, and the beautiful. What is the life we were designed to live? What is the life we long to live? What does our hearts long for? And Jesus addressed this question. It's not surprising Jesus addressed it. But what is surprising is how he answered this question, what is the good life? Now, you probably picked this up a bit in the wonderful scripture reading, and if you have your Bible or an electronic Bible or paper Bible or a pew Bible, I'd like you to turn to the Gospel of Luke if you're not already there, Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, Jesus addresses the good life. And doing that, I would like to unpack two questions for your consideration this morning if you would join me in this exploration The first question is, what is the good life? And that's where I'd like to press in the most this morning, in Jesus' brilliant teaching. But I'd also like to ask the question at some level how is the good life lived? So, what is the good life, and how is it lived? First, the question is, what is the good life? Now, you will notice, beginning in verse 12 of chapter 6 of your Bible, We find Jesus at a pivotal moment in his itinerant rabbinical ministry. Jesus was in the carpenter shop for 30 years. But in God's providence, the incarnate Son of God now spends three years in what we might call an itinerant rabbinical ministry. And what we find in this section of Luke is that Jesus is at a pivotal moment in his mission to the world he calls to himself in a non-conventional rabbinical way 12 individuals who will enter his rabbinical school of training. This was shocking in the first century because rabbinical schools, like an elite Ivy League school, were special to get into. And the rabbi didn't come to you, you came to him. But Jesus finds his 12 disciples. And if you know something about them, they were a motley band, weren't they? Makes us all feel kind of good, you know? And Jesus invites these 12 particularly to enter into his rabbinical school. Now, how we might imagine school, if you have just been to school or some of you are younger, maybe you're in school, (laughs) you've gone back to school, um, you know, you think of classes, you think of sort of doing textbooks, you think of sort of checking in and then leaving for the day. But the rabbinical school was not like at all. It's much like military service. Have you ever been in military service? And I, if you have, uh, I uh, affirm that and thank you for that. But in military service, you know that you leave the sort of civilian life to a very special life. You say goodbye to a life and you enter into first boot camp and often have your head shaved, right? And new uniforms. I mean, you enter into a whole new life. It is all-consuming life. And the first thing you go to is boot camp. Well, this is what Jesus is doing. He's inviting his 12 disciples into boot camp to rabbinical training. Now, can you imagine these 12 disciples coming down from the mountain? Jesus is a superstar like Bono of his day. Crowds just gather everywhere he goes. Can you imagine being one of the 12? I'm with Jesus. Cool, huh? And they come down from the mountain, Luke says. And they must have been starry-eyed. Hey, look who we're with. And the crowds gather, Luke says. But these starry-eyed disciples, now in boot camp or discipleship training... Are going to have their world shattered. So, can you imagine being with Jesus and they enter into the storyline of Luke 6 and there's this curious crowd, adoring crowd looking on? But Jesus' focus is not in the crowd. Luke tells us this very specifically, the other gospel writers do. He is concerned about lesson number one class is now in session for his 12 disciples. The subject of Jesus' first lesson in his discipleship training for his disciples is this What is the good life? Now, as we look at this text, we are stunned, and it is broken into two parts. The first part is in verses 20 through 22, and it stuns us with this reversal. Jesus turns our world upside down, and then he gives us a sober warning in verses 23 through 26. So first, let's look at the great reversal, verses 20 through 23. I'm going to read it again. Listen carefully to God's word. This is our Lord Jesus. And he, Jesus, lifted up his eyes on the disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. That's a messianic title of Jesus. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Now let's put ourselves in the disciples' sandals. I don't know what they were expecting on their first day of class, but they weren't expecting this. You ever had that on a first day of class? You don't know what you're getting into, and if you're a teacher, you don't know the students you're going to have. So this is awkwardness, right? But let's put yourself as a student. You can't imagine what this class is going to be like, and most of us who have been a part of a formal class early on, and maybe you're feeling this, you have syllabus shock. You're overwhelmed at the work, the difficulty, but this is not syllabus shock. Jesus shatters their world. Now let's press into this a bit because the first day of class he turns their whole world upside down. And he does it in a literary arrangement of a fourfold repetition. This is very important in this kind of teaching. It's unusual with four repetitions in rabbinical work. He has this phrase, blessed. You see it? Fourfold repetition is blessed. Now, what does this word mean? Some translators use happy. It's not a really good translation. Blessed is the idea of divine favor, of living life as God designed it. And it's Jesus' comprehensive word to answer the question in one word, what is the good life? And Jesus says, the good life is blessed. Now, That might not have been a surprise, but how Jesus describes this blessed life absolutely knocked the disciples over on their tails. You can imagine the disciples saying, what do you mean? And let's remember that Luke is very specific. Earlier on in Luke chapter 5, that they left everything to follow Jesus. He says it twice. So let's go back into the first century. Let's be where the disciples are, in the classroom of Jesus. I want you to go there with me. They're hearing Rabbi Jesus, the most rock star rabbi of the day, shatter their world on the first day of class. They have just left their whole life to enter into this boot camp training. They left everything to follow Jesus. Luke is very, very he emphasizes that in chapter 5. And now they're thinking... We've left everything for this? I mean, this doesn't sound very good. I mean, being poor, hungry, sad, and hated by others? Yikes. That's not what we signed up for. But what is Jesus saying? I want you to stay with me a bit because it is at the center of Jesus' teaching in all the Gospels. In verse 20, Jesus says, blessed, there's that word, the glib, are those who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now, we need to unpack that because there's lots of misinformation and misunderstanding of what Jesus is teaching. First, what is the kingdom of God? This is a major theme in Jesus' teaching if you've read the New Testament. The kingdom of God, as its very essence, is the reign of God. It is where God gets done what he wants to get done. And the kingdom of life for us is the life we were created to live back in the Garden of Eden. God's design when his kingdom was full and rich before we fell into sin and death entered the world. It is a life of intimacy with God and others and the world around us. It is a life of integralness. It is a life of influence, meaning, purpose, and alignment with God's purposes in creating the world and nurturing his world. This is the kingdom. Paul mentions this language in Romans 14, 17 says the kingdom of God is righteousness, that's a lifestyle, joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. So the kingdom of God plays a very central theme of aligning our lives with God's reign and rule in his world. But what does the poor mean? This word poor in the original Greek language describes the poorest of poor in terms of a multifaceted aspect of being destitute and needy. This term poor has more of a theological sense than an economic sense. I want you to pick this up. How do we know this? Well, this translation from the Old Testament to the New Testament, translators, when they translate the Old Testament to the New Testament, had the sense that the poor were those who were opposite of the proud, not the economic, economic sense of richness. Let me give you an example of that. King David is described and describes himself on several occasions in the Psalms: Psalm 40, Psalm 86, Psalm 109, as being, he says, I am poor and needy. This is King David, who had it all, who was very wealthy. And Matthew, if we want to understand Matthew's parallel teaching of the Beatitudes, gives us the sense that this is a comprehensive life poverty of spirit, Jesus says in Matthew, blessed are the poor in spirit. It is those who see their great spiritual poverty and need for God. Now, in verses 21 through 22, Jesus continues to paint kind of a sad picture, doesn't he? He says, the hungry, the sad, the lonely. It's the picture of those who want more out of life. It's often a picture in the scripture of someone who has been dealt a tough hand in life, a sense of deep disappointment and heartache It may be poor health. It may be divorce, it may be a loss, it may be financial failure. It's the picture of those who want more in life and who haven't found it and are spiritually hungry, recognizing their thirst and hunger for God. Jesus continues this. He says, blessed are the hungry, if you're following along in the text. And the hungry here is not just someone who's physically hungry. The picture is a deep, and gnawing sense of spiritual hunger. And Matthew, again, in his parallel, helps us clarify this. He says in Matthew, "...blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied." So we need to unpack this a bit about the kingdom and what poverty and hunger is. But we also need to notice, and stay with me, in verse 21, Jesus repeats twice a very important word. As he unpacks what the good life is, he contrasts the now with the later, the already with the not yet. You'll notice twice in verse 21 Jesus portrays the good life in a vivid contrast of the good life now and the good life later. And he says those who are poor in spirit, those who hunger for spiritual life now, will be fully satisfied one day in the future. Now, I have discovered, much to my sadness, in my advanced age, bifocals, or they're called progressive lenses, and this is what Jesus is doing in a literary sense, I and mean, when I have progressive lenses, I can look close, right, hopefully see my notes or the Bible, and see you at the same time. It's quite marvelous, actually. But this is the literary bifocal lens that Jesus is placing on the definition and imagination of the good life. His kingdom, the good life, is a progressive lens. That is, to see the good life now, this week, tomorrow, in your work, and at home, in school, this good life is available now. But it is much more available, much more full one day in the new heavens and new earth. Jesus wants his disciples to see the life now because he has come, but the life fully he will, come, he will give them in the new heavens and new earth. It's a day when tears will be no more and sorrow and suffering will vanish forever. This is what he's teaching He is saying, this is the win-win. It is life now as I designed it. It is transformative. It is the good life I bring. But it will never be fully what I've intended for you until the new heavens and new earth. The good life must be seen through the progressive lens of the already not yet. And this is why he uses this word noun or noon twice in this text. There is more to come. So let's put ourselves back in Jesus' disciple sandals. They are shocked. They want it all now, just like we do. I mean, they signed up to get it now. And they are shocked what Jesus is saying. He is saying, basically, blessed are the impoverished, the longing, the sad, the socially ostracized. Right. Let me sign up again. It would be like hearing a preacher today. Let's put it in our context. Who would stand up here and say, blessed, the good life. You're experiencing a good life when you're really messed up. When you're really broken. When you don't have your lives together at all. When your world is falling apart in every dimension. When you are miserable and dependent and you don't have what it takes. That's how they're hearing it. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying there is a foundational starting point to understanding the good life. And that starting point of the good life is to recognize our deep poverty and our deep sense of need. That is the foundation. Jesus reversed everything his disciples had thought the good life would be. He turned their world upside down. It is a stunning reversal of fortune. It is shocking. Have you ever experienced the stunning reversal of fortune in your life? Sometimes it's in a relationship. You know, I think this relationship is, you know, at its last breath. And something happens to restore that relationship to better than before. Or you're starting a business or you're practice and it's really a hard time. You think, and you feel it every day. Ah, this thing is not going to go. You're on vapor. And all of a sudden, something happens to turn it around. And all of a sudden, it begins to prosper, your business. And you go, how did that happen? I thought everything was lost. Now everything is a game. Reversals of fortune are some of the most joyful moments in life. One of the reversal of fortunes that stands out to me. Now, my wife, Liz, is here today, and she's the number one KU fan I know. Rock talk, right? I don't know what fans... You are. There's an amen there, see? But when I think of reversal of fortune, I remember being in our lower level watching the 2008 KU Memphis game. Any basketball fans here? Remember that? I mean, you're watching it, and we had a whole bunch of people, and it's like, oh, not Syracuse again? This was a final game, you know, they lost. Remember that? Carmelo Anthony and all that, if you're a basketball fan. It's like, I stood there just crying when they were this close and lost. But Memphis, ah. But I remember like yesterday thinking, and I'm like, you know, like, they're never going to make it. They were so far behind. The clock was going. remember, everything was just right until Mario's miracle. Mario Chalmers swished it as the buzzer went off and pushed it to overtime, and then KU would just clean their clock. It was a stunning reversal of fortune. They were going to be losers. I mean, the most brutal losers. And they are ticker tape parade winners. That's exactly what Jesus is saying to his disciples. People are going to think you are the biggest losers. They're going to give up on you and think you've missed it. But the good life I offer you is a ticker tape parade. Jesus gives them two head turners. When you read Jesus' brilliant teaching, Watch how he surprises you. Two head turners about the good life. First is this. The good life he offers is open to all. This was stunning in the first century Jewish context. (laughs) The Jewish context was that people who are wealthy and powerful, and they were the ones blessed of God. The kingdom was for those who had it all together. The insiders who had the Torah... That was the good life. That was the blessed ones. And Jesus turns it upside down. Uh uh. Outsiders, the irreligious, now have access to the good life in me. Wow. It's not just the the upwardly mobile that have access to the kingdom, it's the down and outers. The good life is open to all because I have come. Secondly, notice Jesus is saying that the good life he offers takes an upside-down world and he turns it right-side up again, just like he created the world to be back in Genesis 1 and 2. Notice the text says the humble, not the self-sufficient proud, the ones who see their need for Christ, not those who are dismissively haughty or arrogant. They will be the ones who will be the ultimate winners of the good life. So what we must grasp in Jesus' core teaching in the whole New Testament is that the good life is a stunning reversal of fortune. But Luke quotes Jesus now as still having something to say in his lesson. And that is not only a stunning reversal of fortune, but a sober warning. Now tragically, Jesus' teaching here in this text has been misinterpreted, has been misused as a sort of, um, like a self-righteous club, particularly against the rich and popular of the world. But this is not at all what the text teaches. Like anything, wealth or popularity or people can all become an idol, no doubt, When it becomes ultimate in our life, it can become destructive. But Jesus is describing here the perilous danger of seeing the good life through the kingdom of self. The kingdom of self. He is painting a picture with a warning of a life that is not rich unto God. He will bring this to a conclusion at the end of his lesson, at the end of chapter 6, describing someone who builds their life on themselves and one on God. It's the parable of the greatest peril. The wise and foolish builder. The wise builder builds his life, the good life on the word of God and on Christ. The foolish one builds their life on the sands of self. And Jesus is describing here in propositional form, what he will tell us in a parable at the end. Notice again, in these warnings of the rich the full, those who speak well of you, in verses 23 through 26, notice that he compares again the future and the present. Do you see that? Here Jesus paints in 23 through 26, I'm not going to reread that, but he paints this reversal of fortune in the opposite way. He says, The present self-centered, smug, and satisfied will experience a shocking and dire future deprivation. He says, the full now will be hungry. The joyful will now be sad. What is Jesus doing? Brilliant Jesus is describing a self-kingdom bubble. Most of us have blown bubbles. And kids, if you're here today, you know that you love blowing bubbles. And as a big kid, I love blowing bubbles. And I love getting down with kids and putting that little wand, you know, in the little bottle and pulling it up and and watching these big, humongous bubbles floating with all the colors of the rainbow. And you know that when you blow those bubbles, they are a great sense of promise and beauty, but it's just a matter of time until what? They pop. This is the picture Jesus is giving of the good life. The good life we often pursue is just like a bubble. We hear about bubbles, right? Impressive bubbles like the housing bubble, economic bubbles. But Jesus is saying there is a perilous life bubble that's even more dangerous. And Jesus is saying many notions of our good life are just bubbles waiting to be burst before our eyes. Just give them time. They betray us. Sometimes we cling our our lives and hearts and passions to a financial security bubble. Sometimes it's a popularity bubble at school, isn't it? Or with friends or colleagues at work. Sometimes, oh, the good life is a power bubble if I just had power and fame. Or if I'm single and want to be married, oh, if I just was married, now that's the good life. Some of them have been married a while, think, oh, that single life looks pretty good. All these are bubbles of the good life built on the self-kingdom. This is where Jesus has his disciples. Jesus is saying, all these things you think are going to betray you at the end. He says, hey, if you think popularity and power and wealth are it, you are in for a rude awakening. It's only a matter of time till everything bursts. Eugene Peterson, in The Message, paraphrased this text. He does it brilliantly. He says this. There is trouble ahead if you think you have it made. If you're satisfied with yourself, if you think life is all fun and games, there is trouble ahead only if you live for the approval of others and yourself. Oxford professor C.S. Lewis hits this out of the park. C.S. Lewis was committed atheist for many, many years until he came to faith in Christ. And what I think is one of his finest works describing the good life and that which is good, true, and beautiful, the great conversation of philosophers through Western history, Lewis describes the unsatisfying bubbles that we pursue, that we think are the good life. If we just get that, if we just experience that, we'll be happy we'll find what life's about. Lewis astutely points to Jesus' teaching here in this text. And he says this. I want to unpack just a little of this so follow along. He says, looking at the Gospels, it seems that the Lord Jesus finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what it is meant by the offer of a holiday or a vacation at sea. We are far too easily pleased. Lewis goes on. Let me highlight just a little bit. He says, books, music, you can add whatever. We think that's where the beauty is located in life. We think that's where the good life is. It will betray us if we trust in them. He says, these things are good images of what we really desire, but if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they become dumb idols that break the hearts of their worshipers. And Lewis understood the good life that is already and not yet, and this, he says with such poetic brilliance when he says, for they are not the thing itself. They're only the scent of a flower we have not found. The echo of a tune we have not yet heard. News from a country we have not yet visited. As his disciples listened to Jesus, their hearts burned. The scent of a flower they had not yet smelled. The echo of a tune they had not yet fully heard country they had not yet visited awaited them. So what is the good life? The good life is God's creation kingdom life. He invites us to live, and it is a life of complete surrender and radical love. German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and if you've not read much of his works, I highly encourage them. One of his classic works is The Cost of Discipleship. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was martyred by the Nazis for his faith in opposition to this egregious injustice. Bonhoeffer gets to the heart of what Jesus is teaching in Luke 6 when he says this. The fellowship of the Beatitudes is the fellowship of the crucified. With him it has lost all, and with him it has found all. From the cross there comes the call. blessed. Blessed. The paradox of the good life, friends, is that giving up our life, we gain the good life. When we embrace the cross life and we live the cross life, we experience the life we were designed to live way back in the Garden of Eden before sin and death entered the world. When we cling to the cross of Christ and Jesus' atoning, propitiary, or satisfactory sacrifice for us, we hear Jesus' words to us, Individually, as his children, blessed, blessed are you, blessed are you. Jesus' teaching brings a reversal of fortune. It says his good life is accessible to all. And he brings us a sober warning for those of us who forget that Jesus' road is a narrow road and we think we're on easy street. So I said in the beginning, there's much more we can press into of Jesus' good life, but how do we begin to live it? I want to encourage you to read the rest of the gospel of Luke, particularly Luke 6, maybe this week. But I'd like to give you just a little application appetizer, okay, as we wrap it up. In verses 27 through 30, Jesus' teaching continues. We shouldn't just stop here. He says, but I say to you, this is the good life. Now here, love your enemies Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. From one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. What Jesus is saying, and again, this can be misunderstood or misapplied, but the core is this. The good life is not having it all, as we often perceive it. The good life is radical surrender to Jesus of our whole life. Every aspect, every nook and cranny, this is the life Jesus offers us. This is the path to the good life. And it involves a radical love. And we know from the rest of the teaching of Jesus and the scriptures that this kind of life is not something we achieve on our own merit or by our own bootstraps. It is a grace gift made possible because of the good news of the gospel. Jesus came and died for you and me and rose again from the dead and offers you and me this kingdom life, this blessed life, as a gift of his grace. No strings attached when we come to him in faith and repentance. No matter your background, whether it's religious or irreligious, whatever, the good news of the kingdom life is the irreligious the outsiders, the down and outers, the up and outers have access to the good life if they follow Jesus and embrace his gospel. Jesus has a marvelous conversation with one of the most brilliant rabbis of his day, Nicodemus, in John chapter 3. And the conversation of these two rabbis are about what is the kingdom and how do we see it and how do we enter this blessed life, this good life that we understand in Torah in the Old Testament. How do we do it? And Jesus looks at Nicodemus and he says, Nicodemus, you have to be born again. You can't even see the kingdom. You can't even see the good life. You can't even experience the good life unless you are spiritually born again, unless you are a new creation. And only God can do that. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. And right after that, Jesus says a verse that we often quote. John three sixteen, Let me do 3.16 and 17. For God so loved the world. He looks Nicodemus in the eyes. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved, rescued through him. The good life, the narrow road, is found when we embrace Christ as our Lord and Savior. But Jesus' words to his disciples are not just to enter the life, but to live it every day as an apprentice of him. And that's the second point I want to highlight as we wrap it up. It's spiritual formation with Jesus. Jesus invites us to live this life increasingly, to experience this kind of surrender, this radical life, this good life. Matthew 11, 28 through 30, Jesus gives the great invitation. And at Christ's community, we spend a lot of time to unpacking this very important text. But I want to emphasize it to you because this is is where Jesus takes his disciples. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The picture is the life and creation, Genesis 2-1. I'll give you the life God designed you to have, the life you deeply long to have, the life you want to live. I will give that to you, so come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you this rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The yoke of Christ, the apprenticeship, with Jesus, the school of discipleship, involves a watershed decision in your life and mine, and that is to say goodbye to an old way of life and to embrace a brand new life, a life so awesome we could never imagine its fullness now and what is to come. Jesus invites us to experience that life and to build the habits of the heart in local church community where there is radical surrender, radical love, and radical transformation of our lives and our world. So let me just challenge us to take some honest inventory. Where are you this morning? What are the habits of your heart? Are you living this good life in Jesus as his follower, as his disciple? I want to raise three questions. I'd like you to write them down if you're taking notes as an inventory of reflection today or this week, wherever you are in your spiritual life. First, Jesus calls us, his disciples, to a life of radical love. So the first question is, how are you learning to love those who don't love you? Who comes to your mind? Is there a person, a neighbor, a colleague, a friend at school, a member, someone of a member of another political party or a lifestyle you disagree with? How are you learning to love those who don't love you? That's where Jesus goes in this text. Secondly, Jesus calls all who are his disciples to the good life of taking our shirt off our back in radical generosity. So are you learning to be increasingly generous with what you have? Are you becoming a more generous person with your time, your talent, your treasure, Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than receive. Jesus knew that the good life was not getting more, it was giving more to others because we were created to be generous in his image. Third, Jesus calls his disciples to a good life of radical mercy and compassion on others. So how are you learning to be kind to the ungrateful, to the difficult people who take you for granted, who take and give nothing back, what is the good life? Jesus turns our world upside down, doesn't he? It's different than most of us can ever imagine, but what Jesus says, it is more awesome than we can imagine. Not only now, but for all eternity. So, will you decide to follow Jesus today? Will you live the good life that God designed you to live and that Christ has made possible for you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are challenged by Jesus' powerful words to us, words of truth and grace and hope. And I pray, Father, that the Spirit of God would speak into each one of our lives as we respond in grace and truth. In Jesus' name, amen.